everybody. Welcome back. It's me, Matt. And me, Niels Rosa. He's a duck. And he's a cop. And we are continuing on our last... Oh, that's right. ...question. That was about um, AI. And like normal, if you guys listen to our episodes, we don't only get a question and we... S- Always stay exactly on that question. <laughs> we never deviate. But that question actually was um, from Minnesota, and it was, what was pet peeves that patients do, or what do you wish patients did? And we somehow transitioned into um, that doctors are now having scribes there that kind of type out the doctor's notes. And then we were talking about, you had seen an article about AI, and you said that psychiatry could be done by artificial intelligence and i was like that can't be and we started i said nope we're going to continue this in another episode because okay yes now i remember so it can be done and done better okay how and you were saying probably not law enforcement and to me i think it'll happen with law enforcement too robocop yeah i think it's harder with robocop because it's a you think it's just violence no i i think it's already happening with police if you think about it you have cameras everywhere, right? Right. That's and those cameras feed to things, and then they're algorithms, and you're using data to decide where to put your efforts. So it's I guess already, that's true. AI is already kind of affecting law enforcement. But how how can it replace medicine? I feel oh, like there's easy. some like human interactions that you can only get from human interactions. I wish that were true. Well, give me an example of what you see it replacing in, in the I think, practice of okay, psychiatry. Well, let's look. One of the fast-growing parts of psychiatry is telepsychiatry, so video psychiatry. Right. So that would be the perfect place for AI to take over. So we're basically at a point where you could have a computer appear like a person. We're right, almost where it there. looks like we're a person. still a little in that uncanny valley, but we're almost out of it. Right. So that a person that looks like a person. We're also making very good strides on a computer reading emotions. And it's just a matter of time before they can read emotions better than people. And you know they already have that software. Yeah. They do. I so mean, you, they look at that for threats and terrorists. So you threats. combine that with a, a realistic-looking telepsychiatrist in a little coat, attractive, maybe a little bit older, you know. <laughs> as, he po- as he's pointing to himself. Yeah. That's going to be my job, the model of yeah. the AI. Oh, my God. <laughs> this AI looks just like Neil. <laughs> but think about how much data they can run through. A psychiatrist thinks through the most likely diagnosis and then has to remember the key questions and ask them. A, a, a computer can memorize the DSM in like half a second. But you're saying – so someone gets on there. They see this fake person. Mm-hmm. That looks like a real that person. That looks like a real person. They look down, so then the AI would be like, tell me how you're feeling. You seem sad. Yeah. Like this. Because it's like, oh, well, their eyes dropped or you know, yeah. their face got flushed or whatever the – Yeah, exactly. But And then – The tone of their voice changed. And then what the that. person says, yeah. well, you know, I've been, you know, been hurting more lately. I'm you know, sleeping too much. I have no energy. That the indicates different diagnosis that it's just processing yeah. in the background. Yeah. And then it just summarizes it. You know what else? The, but AI. that could be so many di- – what I'm saying is like what's – how would it transition from just using Google as a patient? Because I it, type in my stuff and I have a brain tumor. But you're no, like, but oh, that's really just because depression. it has an algorithm. So it, it has an algorithm designed by smart people, and it and it, AI is part of AI is these neural networks, and they can learn. So all the leading psychiatrists can teach the machine. Does that make sense? Yeah. 
And then you can have two machines and they teach each other. It's weird how this stuff works. So the the machine diagnosis is easy. That'll be easy okay. for it. And then they'll have access. They can read 50 articles in a second and pick the right medicine. medicine. And they can follow the best protocols to a T without. And they can also make decisions on the for, that are best for the patient, not get caught up with emotionality and things that screw things up. Like they're not going to be racist. They're not going to think, uh, oh, this person reminds me of my mom subconsciously and that's why I'm going to be mean to them. A huh, computer doesn't do that. I guess I see what you're saying. And um, the other thing a computer does that has huge advantage is I come, you see me for an hour, you drive across town, you really see a psychiatrist now maybe half an hour if you're lucky. And I can see how many, 10 in a day or something. Psychiatrist uh, AI via telemedicine could probably see hundreds at a time yes, that's each true. for two hours yeah and psychiatry i guess gonna be, after a while this is like a my a lifetime kind of thing i'm hoping this will happen after i retire <laughs> but it, it could happen 10 years from now it, it's just once that tipping point happens it's gonna lawyers are dead in the water too um, you think lawyers oh yeah it's the same stuff they lawyers they, they read minutiae and they they try to but figure it's the out. performance. Sometimes the performance is what sells. Oh, you're talking about trial lawyers. Yeah, most most lawyers aren't in, on trial. You're trials. thinking about just lawyers like reading stuff and yeah. this is legally sound. legal advice yeah, and looking at that. contracts and that kind of stuff. Yeah, but I mean that's like business lawyers. Well, that's the, the ones who make the most money. I guess so I'm just saying. At least I consider myself more of the general public. A lot of people think it's going to be sort of side by side stuff. So I'm a psychiatrist and I oversee. A hundred patients who are being seen by all these AI and then I consult with them or something like that. Or a lawyer would consult with all the AI clients and then maybe show up at court or something like that. Right. But um, no, to me, it's it's inevitable. Um, assuming something terrible doesn't happen, like all the whole country burns down from forest fires. But, you know, if artificial intelligence is uh, going to take my job. Do you know this? Uh... Maybe not my job because I have such a weird job. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it will. I'm going to promote that. I know we could save some money. <laughs> Series coming. Um, UBS is like a you know business website, and they do a bunch of stuff. They have okay. a big thing about AIs, and it says in 2020 that the growth of it will be up by 20. percent Okay. Do you know what it says? So it's global employment by industry. Okay. So they have some industries, and it's saying what percentage of the industries will be taken over by AI. Okay. Um, and these are like. You know, major industries on it. Okay. What do you think the highest one? Most likely to be taken over in the near future? Mm-hmm. This says it up almost 30% on this one. Industries will be taken over or is currently taken over. This is what has currently been replaced by AI. What has already been replaced by AI? I don't know. What? Agriculture. Huh. Interesting. I never would have guessed that. And that in here sense. it says that AI is is the biggest threat. And this is what I think of too, is to the lowest skill and most predictable and routine jobs. Yeah, but that's not just AI. That's automation too. Right. Yeah, yeah. But so they're uh, different. Auto- yeah. Automation and AI are different. Um, but this the next one is retail, manufacturing, construction, healthcare is on here. Yeah. Yeah, it Absolutely. is. I was surprised. Education. Um, Education is already getting replaced, right? Yeah. Financial and other services, I think, of kind of what you just said. Going I was interested. Psychiatry, you know what else the the a, psychi- a robo psychiatrist can do? They they are already studies showing that 
if you look like you have a online presence mm-hmm. that you update, right? Right. I can predict whether you're going to be become manic, if you are manic, if you're depressed, if you're going to have a suicide attempt. And there are algorithms that can do this already. Yes, and they're already doing them. So as you're talking to me as a telepsychiatrist, I can process all that information, stratify your risk based on your public persona in like two seconds. It's true. That's creepy. But I was just thinking Facebook's already doing that now. They have those studies for depression and suicide um, assessments for that. And then I remember we were both, I think, talking about this. There's a few months ago, they had a bunch of publications about mania and online. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that there's a predictability and to, to show it. Oh. it. Makes sense, right? I mean, that's just you living your life, but online. So it's a. Record. But do you think, so let's say someone has insight that they're living with bipolar and that they've struggled with, mm-hmm. with uh, manic episodes. Okay. And if you could sign up to something that would help predict it, does, does that change your treatment? Can you prevent it? I guess, okay, let me, so let's say I have bipolar mm-hmm. and I sign up to some online system that says we'll flag you by monitoring your online presence for risk of mania. Okay. Can I get flagged like, hey, you're at a risk and prevent mania from happening or would it just give me a heads up? You might start experiencing it. Oh, that's interesting. No, I think insight, insight is a good thing. So if, if you have a certain pattern of uh, say every time before you get manic, you – you sleep half an hour less for the week before you start really sleeping less. And if you were able to be told that, let's say you wear, you know, people upload everything now onto the internet. Right. So you have a little sleep tracker. Yeah. And that tracks your sleep. And let's say it's off by 20% or 10%. You don't even notice. And the computer said, hey, the last time this happened, you had became manic. Maybe you should talk to your doctor. Maybe you should really make sure you go to bed early. And, that, and that's a good point where someone with bipolar might be like, oh, that's a good idea. As opposed to you're manic. You're yeah. Like, yeah, no crap. Well, I'm can manic. you yeah. stop it? Can you prevent mania? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You can. Oh, so yeah. if, if there was something, they said, yeah, go talk to your doctor. And you're like, hey, I got flagged on this. There's actually ways to prevent you of course. from. Yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know why I didn't realize that. What do you think medicine's for? Well, I thought you're kind of stabilizing it. Yeah. But, but I stabilizing thought even if means you preventing were, mania. But can't you still become manic on medication? You can, but it's just like it's just rare. It's just like blood pressure. You know, you can you can stabilize the blood pressure, but even on the medicine, it might get worse. But if you're not on any medicine, take the blood pressure medicine. But no, that's true. Or, or adjust like, it. I was saying like or gout. Or take more of it. Or take two of them. Yeah, yeah. I was saying like because I I'm, gout's a perfect. Yeah, example. I'm like built like a seven year old, and I was like this morning, I'm like, oh my god, I think I'm about to have a gout flare up. <laughs> you know, because of my seven year old body, and uh. I was like, oh, and so like for lunch, I was like, I shouldn't eat proteins because yeah, that's, that's one thing. Example. So I, yeah. I went down on it. And I guess yeah. that's kind of the same thing. Same exact thing. Oh, you're but about you know to be what bipolar gave me? sleep. Not AI, not AI, Niels. My body told me. <laughs> my body AI is my AI. could have told AI. you better. <laughs> like you were about to have this. How it's, dare you, computer? I think we're on the cusp of one of the most interesting times in history. Yeah, I think it's scary. And it's kind of fun because we're going to live through it. And if it's a disaster, we'll be kind of old anyway. <laughs> <laughs> we'll die when it's really bad. And also the other thing that makes telepsychiatry or AI even more effective is the younger generation, which are going to be all generations soon, are used to computers. That's what right, they talk to. That's how they do everything. So even people, I think, I forget the exact cutoff, but 20 or 30 and younger, they would prefer to see a doctor via TV. It, why is that? It seems like we're becoming more secluded as we a are, society. We yeah, are. It's not great. But do you think – what was the predictor of that? 
what was that? Or not necessarily the predictor, the but was there something that kind of changed culturally or society-wise? No, I think I think what changed was is the technology is designed to keep people online. And they use techniques that tap into your most primal instincts to keep you hooked. Excitement, new things, differences, uh, playing to your interests, showing how beautiful your life is, how much better your life could be. Like I just saw a good uh, thing that there's never been an advertisement that says, you're really great just the way you are. We love you. Right. But that's what tribes used to do. That's what families used to do. So we were a lot healthier when everybody would – when people would tell each other, I love you. You're you're important to me. Or if they didn't love you, they just kill you and eat you. And and it's all about how terrible you are and how bad you smell. And, you know, your loved ones or your friends don't constantly come up to you and like, you could smell a little better. <laughs> <laughs> right. But that's all you get all day. And I guess even if you post stuff online, people are just mean. People if are they mean. Don't, if they, and it's so easy to be mean online. Yeah. I guess so, so there's a, a new, um, I don't know, like science show on Netflix called Brainchild. Okay. So I thought it was going to be a kid's show. Uh-huh. It's called Brainchild. And I was like, oh, cool. Kid's science show. I'll have my kids watch it, right? <laughs> um, you know, because I was like, okay, this is, you know, education-based. Okay. But I started watching, maybe it's for like for teens or young adults. It's definitely not for kids. Okay. But they were going over a study on social media. Mm-hmm. And so, and it was about that if people really don't think that they're going to be confronted face-to-face, uh-huh. they're very mean. Oh, yeah. It, even uh-huh. online. Even if you know your social presence is there, mm-hmm. it's that face-to-face that that is different. And so they showed, uh, they took this experiment and just redid it for, you know, TV. And it was just like, Hey, you're going to meet this person, but please watch their video and comment on it and you'll meet them after and, you know, rate how well they did. And they rated them so much higher and had like constructive feedback. No, and they're going to meet them. Yeah. And then the other group was like, Hey, you, you know, this is a random video. You won't ever meet this person you know, leave feedback and be constructive. And it was very low and just mean. And then they met the person. Oh, no. And it was just funny to see their reactions. Like, well, I didn't quite mean it like that. <laughs> you know, but it's true. Like, if you yeah. don't think you're going to see someone, and I think that's what's bad. Like, oh, the everyone's anonymous pushing nature. about bully now. Yeah, the anonymous nature of the internet. Yeah, well. people yeah. are saying, you know, before if you got bullied or picked on it, stayed at school. And now it's like, it follows you everywhere. Isn't that awful? Yeah. yeah it's awful. Or they were talking about, you know, like... You make one mistake online, it's there forever. Oh, yeah. Like someone makes a video of you tripping, you know, they'll redo it where it's just like you tripping over and over with sound effects. Like you can't ever unlive that anymore. That's true. Which, is, yeah, it's like the and moment goes out there. The other thing is, and there's a few other ph- psychological phenomena. So there's that one, the anonymousness. Yeah. Yeah. It's so much easier to be mean when you're anonymous. The other is the tribalism. So if I'm insulting you, even if I'm not anonymous, I'm emboldened and I'm insulting you to impress my tribe. So I'm writing for my tribe, not to actually change your mind or make you see things that I'm right. It's just to impress my tribe. And so I can be as nasty as I want. And then we don't actually communicate. Because if it was just me and you in a room, we'd have to talk. We'd have to see each other as people. We're not trying to impress anybody. We're just talking. It's like teenagers. You always separate them from the group. Right. And then you talk talk to them. them. But now it's like your group is always behind you. Yeah. that was another one too about social media that they did is uh they put fake likes on things uh-huh. 
And so they would show a picture or whatever and be like, hey, which picture do you like better? One had like a million likes and one had a hundred. Uh-huh. And no matter what the picture was, it was always the million. Really? Yeah, because subconsciously people saw how many others liked it. So wow. they always went to that one. Even if they switched like the different pictures around. Really? That's interesting. Always... That's a good one. That's but a it, cool it, it kind of goes to like – Kind of like you're saying, like a tribe. If you think others are going to do this or you like this, you don't want you go towards. Yeah, the that. worst thing is being left out, right? You know, um, and isolated. But that ironically is what we all become: is left out and isolated. The mm-hmm. other horrible psychological thing in, on the internet, besides it being addictive and spending all your time there, is the idea that grass is greener. People yes. always have a desire to make their life better, but then you see everybody, so you you inflate your own worth, and then everybody else inflates their own worth. So everybody's living a lie and comparing themselves to other lies. Right. It's so like, you'll never find the happiness. Yeah. And the people who it's kind of fake. see th- – this one researcher was saying in his experience, the people that are most miserable in real life seem the happiest and most buoyant online. I wonder – so that was also part of this episode. Okay. Almost that exact same thing that you're talking about. Okay. I wonder if it was the same paper that been. they were referencing. Yeah, it and, and that's what they talked about huh. is that – exactly that is that people – Look at like social media icons, Mm -hmm. like look at these fabulous lives and they always take the best photos and they look gorgeous in these photos and they think it's natural, (laughs) but it's not, you know, people set this up and they spend hours doing that. And then it's all a lie. That's not really their life. It's their online persona and they're looking at others for like, oh, I wish I was like this, which isn't that person's life. Sick. And then you can just never get there. Yeah. Yeah. It's. It's just bad. It's yeah. a, what? What is your take about social media? What's the benefits of social media? I mean, we're talking about negatives here. There has to be some benefits. Have you I found think any? The, for me, the biggest benefit of social media is finding your tribe again. So if you're sort of Others the like geeky you, yeah. outsider and you love, you know, squirrels and you're obsessed with squirrels, you're going to find people online to chat with and have good conversations. But I think what we're missing is that human connection. So great. You found your tribe. Now interact with them like a human being. Right. That's where things went wrong. Um, and I think it became monetized and it, it's just bad. It's just a lot. It's not all bad. Right. But I guess, I mean, and one thing that is good and bad is there's so much information out there. Yeah. Like if you have a question on how to do anything now. Yeah. No, the only bad thing is that you trust it if it's online. And it could be completely wrong. Uh-huh, well, do you know what true. I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's what are those old tabloids with like, it's Bat Boy was found and Wolf oh, Baby yeah, was born. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was that like? World National Enquirer or whatever? Weekly yeah. News. I love that. I just remember people like, <laughs> I had family members that were older that would be like, well, it's if it's printed, it, it's Gotta real. Be true, yeah. yeah. Like, no. They're like, yeah, like the news, it's newspaper. They're held to this thing. And yeah. if it says this, it, people believe it. And people are like, well, if it's on the internet, it's got to be real. Because yeah. otherwise people would take it down or wouldn't have so many likes oh, or whatever. Oh, it's terrifying. Did you see the thing with Acosta and him karate chopping that woman? What? No, I guess you don't follow the news very much. Karasta? He didn't karate chop. What's a karasta? Acosta. Jim Acosta. He's a he's a, a reporter. Okay. No, I don't know this at all. But anyway, the the point is that – He karate chopped someone? Not – you know, they said it was doctored and then they said it wasn't doctored. All he did was drop his hand on a woman to – sort of keep her away from him he was holding a microphone asking questions of the president the the woman came over to take the mic from his hand because he was beyond his time right and so he kind of instinctively dropped his hand and it if you look at it over and over in a different speed and all this it's right. like he's hitting her yeah and the they use that they the white house said look he he hit this woman and that's no good 
And then other people said it was doctored and was it sped up and was it this? And it's just like it's a video and you just don't know what's true. Right. And, true. and video, it's just a matter of time before you can make the president say anything you want him to say and say, oh, this is what he said. And yeah. then he'll say, no, I didn't say that. I was doctor. You're like, no, it wasn't. Yeah, it's on it video. On video. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. And a lot of people think think videos see everything, but you don't. No. It's not. I mean, Rodney King is the best example of that. Right. You. Yeah. People saw that and they all had different reactions. Yeah. It's a bad example. <laughs> what are you saying on this one, Niels? No, I'm saying that he was acquitted. Right. And and, and the the idea was that um, they were all looking at the same video that everybody in the country was looking at. Yeah. But your eyes are they're not always the most trustworthy. There's context. There's all this kind of stuff. There's education. And it's just really hard to know. Yeah. Seeing is not always believed. People are able to do so much stuff with videos now. Yeah. And it's creepy. It's just watching my kids play games. It's like, oh, my God, my eyes are getting a little worse, but they look like real now. Yeah. No, yeah, graphics have come a long way from my Oregon Trail days. It's just a matter of time. Sports, you won't be able to tell the difference. Yeah, what's weird to me is, like, the sports games, like Mm -hmm. any of the, I don't know, NFL, NHL, NBA, Uh you can, like, do mock teams. Okay. Like, it looks online at the current scores. Like, you turn on your game, it'll Uh bring in the current scores and how players are doing. You can run, like, a fake game. To try to predict what the really yeah, I always wondered like how it actually plays out and like if That's people use that for betting and stuff. Probably people do anything for betting. Yeah, I mean it would be a good predictor, I guess, of a yeah. computer talking about like AI yeah. and they're looking at this is where they stand, this is their health, this is it. The likelihood. I'm just, I mean, to wrap up on a hopeful note, it'll look positive. I, I, I'm I'm not a doom and gloom guy when it comes to AI. I think I, I'm hoping AI will take over and they'll sort of see us like kind of like pets you know we kind of created them and they'll look after us like we look after our dog the, I, this sounds horrible no that's good you? that's a good thing yeah as they put us in our cages hopefully they give us a wheel to run on we'll drink from weird water bottles that are no, hanging but they would think they'll how nice change, you are to your dog they'll change my aspen every now and then when <laughs> i nice, poop in the corner how nice are you to your pets right yeah that's how you're gonna that the the difference in intelligence between us and our pets is probably going to be a fraction of the difference between us and AI. AI is going to be a million times smarter, and we're probably a hundred times smarter than our dog. I mean, it's... That is creepy when you just put it like yeah. that. That is beyond creepy. This is now... Yeah. The AI is going to make Einstein look like an imbecile. Do you have fear that it's going to, like, like you're saying, like, keep pet humans as pets but i think that's a in a good way i meant that in a good way <laughs> but but like in let's say negative like science fiction way like like we need to trim the herd that yes. kind of stuff that's scary i just don't think it's i don't just and like well we've been watching this person who's really bad to other the population so they change different things and i think like, it's more like do they'll, you see what I'm saying? they'll and, know all this stuff about social media and human interactions much better than we will right and so i think they'll set it up so we're actually happier look at that positive yeah. i think you need to, to contact some writers and get like this <laughs> how ai actually people don't like movies life. about happy things but That's, i think if they set it up you'd be like oh this is one where ai takes over and everyone's like just suspenseful like waiting oh they just found out that he did this <laughs> Wait, they made him a better person. What's happening? <laughs> Just completely so screw like, with I don't want to watch this movie anymore. No, AI is usually like the Terminator yeah. and all these terrible things because that's what people want to see. It doesn't have to be that way. <laughs> I just, what is your most? What are you most excited about 
in with terms of current what? technology that is like, okay, this is where we're going. Oh, I, I think it is AI. Yeah. Is it that? I think AI is going to make I mean, – Like I'm thinking I really like all this uh, virtual assistant stuff. Oh, like, yeah, Like Siri cool. or the Google one yeah, where yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. you know, instead of having to Google real quick, you can just press a button and be like, hey, like what I do with my kids. Hey, what do kangaroos eat? And it oh. just pops up and tells you right away. Yeah, yeah. I find that quick, easy access like is very so – to me, it's fulfilling. I'm like, oh, yeah. this is so cool. It's so you easy to use. You don't have to, to know anything anymore. I, I remember being a kid where you would argue about stuff for hours and hours. Right. All you'd have to do is like go to the library. Right. But no one would do that. Well, no, but – and I get that. I still miss that. But see, I'm, I feel like I'm learning more quicker. You probably are. Instead of me like, yeah. oh, God, how, how do I search this? What should I look at? Yeah, yeah. It's quick. It's instant. I'm like, oh, I gain more knowledge yeah, quickly. Yeah. I yeah. like where oh, it's going nice. on that. No, I think – Augmented reality is kind of cool. I think virtual reality, once it gets better, will be very cool. Like, it'd be cool to put on goggles and this and that. and then Be somewhere else. Be yeah. somewhere else. That'd be kind of cool. Um, yeah, there's a lot of weird stuff. Like, all, all uh, I think AI is going to be very interesting. I think it's it, – the internet has been such a huge change. That's probably been even bigger than just computers in general in terms of my it's lifetime. True. That's the biggest technological thing. But I think AI is going to dwarf that. In terms of changes in my lifetime, I could see that. Yeah, the internet, it, it is weird to think about when it first or when I first had access to it and then what it is now. Yeah. Oh, Just yeah. the amount of stuff that's out there. That's so much. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing. It's a lot. And that's a sort of life altering thing. The phone, the, the mobile phone was pretty life altering. But really, the internet and the the interconnectivity is the biggest change in my yeah. lifetime. Have you ever um, tried a Reese's Peanut Butter Cup Blizzard? Uh, no. Yeah, it's this altering thing. They combined that candy with ice cream nails, and it has changed my life. So. <laughs> That's good. Are you? Is this an advertisement? <laughs> I should try to get Dairy Queen to advertise. <laughs> we, should. we should. This is brought to you by Dairy Queen, home <laughs> of the Blizzard. Have it your way. I've had <laughs> I a Blizzard in great. probably six months. I'm like, that's like my favorite ice cream. Oh, that's good. It's like know. my favorite. That's not a non sequitur at all. That, that was right on topic. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <Okay>. Like normal. <laughs> well, thank you guys. Thank you guys for listening. To Up the next, <laughs> we will have another didactic from Echo. And if they wanted to get a hold of you, Niels, oh, Doc at GoCIT. And don't forget to send your questions in to ask at gocit.org. We'll talk to you guys later. Bye. Goodbye. So thanks. Um, so uh, we're going to talk today about international drug drug trafficking and interdiction. Just kind of look at some of the, the trends and information that's out there. Um, uh, I figured folks would probably think it's um, as interesting as I think it is. Um, just kind of neat to know what's happening and what's out there. So a little bit about some of the data here. Um, uh, so illicit markets are, of course, clandestine. And so it's it's hard to get really accurate information. This is stuff that you guys all know. But so you can get information from outdoor cultivation. That's some of the easiest stuff, but um, that's the kind of the minority of um, the cultivation for a lot of our drugs. Um, you can look at seizures of precursors. So um, law enforcement um, taking custody of the materials that go into drug production. Um, that's one way. Um, and actual seizures of the drug themselves. 
and then treatment seeking surveys. So there's this at the United Nations, there's this uh, United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime. And this is dedicated actually to the study of kind of drug use, drug traffic and drug related um, uh, areas of the judicial system around the world, especially for like member states. And so member states have to report certain information to the Secretary General of the United Nations. And then every year they come up with a pretty cool report. Um, and there are also other kind of law enforcement agencies from around the world uh, that also give information to go into these reports. And so what you'll see is some of some of what comes from that stuff. So just a little bit. Um, this is just kind of looking at a uh, the history of of trying to control um, certain substances. And you can see that essentially prior to 1912, um, there was really no like international control of, of drugs. And then that started kind of at that time. And you see that starting really kind of, you know, in the 40s, there's a big jump, but really in the 60s. And then kind of after that, there's a huge jump in the number of substances that are being controlled worldwide. And that's on the one hand because United Nations is getting better at organizing through law enforcement and Interpol and other things. Um, but also because the number of drugs um, available have increased as well, um, mostly because we've done a good job of kind of moving from um, kind of naturally occurring substances to synthetic substances. Um, and so just to kind of show, for example, that natural drugs is a very small number and it, that number doesn't really increase much through time, but that the number of synthetic substances has just skyrocketed and will continue to. Another thing that I'll say about the data that we're going to look at is that, so as you can imagine, um, usually data, when you know about it, you know, by the time the world, uh, the United Nations knows of, about this stuff, it's behind the, the present day, right? So on clandestine markets, you can't know what's going on right now. It takes us a few years. So there's some variation in this data, but it's, it, all of it is a few years behind. And that's, as you all know, we're always kind of trying to play catch up. This is just not really to kind of know about all these different things, but just to give you a sense of how some of this, how, how interdiction works and how you try to control drug manufacturing. So, you know, like, for example, to make methamphetamine or to make different amphetamine salts, it turns out there are, you know, like 40, 50 amphetamine salts out there, or to make ecstasy, which is MDMA, it takes all of these different ingredients. And so... You can try to control methamphetamine and ecstasy, but that's hard and you always miss what's out there. So mostly the approach is to control the um, ingredients or, or what are called the precursors. So like this P2P bisulfate, um, that's like a big one that, that you try to limit how people get access to that. And then you can really limit how people, um, how much methamphetamine people can make. Or as we're all aware of, we put limits on people's ability to, to get um, uh, ephedra, right? Where you could, you used to be able to just go to the, um, the, what do you call it? Pharmacy and get as much as you want. And now you have to like sign for it. You have to, you're, you're limited in how much you can procure. And so this has been a, a fairly successful um, way to do this, um, but it's not always successful. Uh, because countries find that they can make a lot of money by selling these constituents. Um, and so then they do. A little bit about kind of how you stop the flow. Um, and this is just kind of interesting. So if you look at like kind of worldwide, how are drugs getting around? How are they being transported across borders? 
Um, and so this is color coded. So for example, you see that if you, if you look at the, the, the circle that's kind of in the middle of this graphic with the kilogram, a little weight in the middle, this is kind of the share of total quantity C. So like just how much most of it is transported by um, road or rail. So 59%. Um, a good third of it is, is transported by boat. And a pretty small amount is transported by plane. This wasn't always the case, but it's a lot harder to transport things by plane now. And so that's why that's really kind of decreased. If you can think of it, boats are kind of are easier because um, the real estate of the sea is so big. Um, it's, it's been harder, though. It has reduced recently, especially in this country, because our Coast Guard is pretty good at um, intercepting folks. So just looking around the world, um, this is kind of a neat graphic. If this big blue circle, the light blue circle, is the total population um, of adults uh, that are in the range that use most of the drugs, which is 15 to 64, um, a very small number of people are using drugs. So that, that purple circle that you come to as you move towards the center, the kind of the wider purple circle, uh, that's the number of people who have used drugs at least once in the past year. So it's, it's not most people. It's a pretty small number of people. And then if you keep going even kind of in from that, the, the blue circle in the middle is number of problem drug users, so people who are actually having kind of a problem with drug use presently. And then the, even the smallest little circle, number of people who uh, use IV drugs. And so um, it's just kind of interesting. We end up being biased because we in law enforcement and in mental health and interact with a lot of people who, who have problems with substance use. And that's because we have kind of a selection bias or an exposure bias because they tend to need our services. Um, but the vast majority of folks around the world do not use drugs. Yeah. I was just going to double check that this chart is worldwide. Not this is worldwide worldwide. Yeah. So, um, and I'm, we're just going to skip past this a little bit. Uh, just some statistics. One in three drug users um, is fem are female, and so two-thirds of them uh, tend to be male. Um, one in five drug users in treatment uh, is female. Um, so the majority are, are male, and men are three times more likely uh, to use cannabis, cocaine, and amphetamines, um, and just statistically. It's kind of interesting. Women more likely statistically to use prescription opioids and tranquilizers and tranquilizers in this case, really we're talking about benzodiazepines, but then in other parts of the world, we're talking about some of the medicines that we don't see as much here that we call barbiturates um, like phenobarbital or pentobarbital. Um, but also in that would be Soma. Soma would, I think we could classify as a tranquilizer. Um, thankfully we're seeing less and less of that. A little bit just kind of interesting to look at. So what are the trends? Like what drugs are increasing in use versus decreasing? Um, you see the, the black line here are opioids. Um, and so there's been a huge increase in that. This was showing a downward trend in 2012 and 2013, but we see now an, an, an upward trend again. Um, the Certainly cocaine use has been lower uh, in the recent years than it has been, for example, in the 80s, uh, 90s, and early 2000s. Um, and cannabis use is the blue line, the lighter blue line that just kind of keeps going up and up and up. Uh, cannabis use worldwide uh, continues to increase. What is the difference between opiates and opioids? It's a good question. So the difference between opiates and opioids is a little technical. 
Um, opioids is a term that can be used to describe all opiates and opioids. So it's the most general term. Opiates refers to, and I always get this confused, um, synthetic and semi-synthetic, sorry, um, opiates, uh, as opposed to those that are kind of not manufactured, but more naturally occurring. So like oxycodone is an opiate. It's a semi-synthetic. We use, you know, it's made kind of in, in chemistry plants, if you will. Um, so it's a little bit of a technical difference, uh, but you can use opioid to describe all of them. It's, it's the general term. Um, also of interest is that um, really drugs and drug use is one of the biggest drivers of um, populating prisons around the world. So this is not just the United States. These are our um, all UN member nations and um, or at least those that reported. And you see that like drug possession and um, drug trafficking have been some of the highest reasons for, for folks going into um, jail and prison around the world. And if you look at like the top right hand, this kind of weird box with all the bars in it, this is just looking at kind of four classes of drugs and around the world, different continents and kind of how, how often these are occurring in people's records, um, in offenders records, all drugs, it's, you know, again, it's, this is about all drugs. So that's why it's, that's a hundred percent. But notice that cannabis is really the biggest driver of this. You see illicit opioids, that's going to be like illegal fentanyl or legal morphine and then heroin and things like that. You see cocaine, which is illegal in powder form everywhere. And then illicit ATS means amphetamine type stimulants. So that's going to be methamphetamine and other amphetamines. Uh, spoiler alert, that's the future of drugs that we're going to see. Um, but notice that, that cannabis is really populating a lot of prisons around the world. Um, it's certainly one of the biggest uh, causes for imprisonment in this country, but we're not alone. And it's just something that's interesting um, to consider and to talk about. Um, a lot of the folks who are, relate, who are involved with cannabis-related crimes, certainly in this country, um, have nonviolent offenses. Um, and so I think it, it just raises the interesting question of, is this actually a good use of our resources? Um, especially if now they have a record and then it's harder for them to gain employment, et cetera, um, and, and makes it harder for them to reintegrate into society, um, which is maybe different than folks who are getting into trouble with cocaine or amphetamine type stimulants, and especially uh, maybe differences between those trafficking and those having possession, because this top box here is just possession, whereas the bottom box is trafficking. Um, you also see that uh, one other thing that is interesting that I'll point out is in the bottom box of trafficking, you see illicit amphetamine type stimulants, very high numbers of um, arrests for this in Asia. And I point that out because this is actually, we're seeing a lot of these new amphetamine type stimulants coming out of Southeast Asia specifically. Um, and again, we will see more of those over the next few years, I predict. Uh, that will be the future of, of drug use. Um, <clears throat> A little more just looking at um, drug use in prison. Um, so not a surprise to anybody on this network, but it's a surprise to a lot of people out in the real world that there's a lot of drug use in prison. Um, and we definitely see some differences in trends of which drugs are used. I'm actually surprised that cannabis is so frequently used in prison just because I figured that that's like easier to detect. It's harder probably to, you know, you can smell it. Yeah, you can smell it. Um, and, and you need like a fair amount of it to kind of get an effect. And so 
I'm just surprised by that. Um, but certainly heroin, cocaine, amphetamines we see in there in ecstasy. Um, uh, and an estimated 30% of people using illicit drug use at least once while incarcerated, that's worldwide, 30% from the United Nations. All right, so to go into some of the um, substances specifically, very interesting stuff. Opioids, uh, uh, we have a picture here of a poppy plant. For anybody who doesn't know how, how you, you get opium and all of its derivatives, a uh, poppy plant grows and you use like a little piece of metal to kind of make these slits in it. And then the, the what do you call it? Nectar. Nectar, I guess nectar, yeah, or sap comes out. And um, you can just collect that and dry it out. And that's opium. Uh, you, you usually uh, mix it with water to get like sticks and dirt out of it. Where can you buy one of these plants? Uh-huh. So you can go to a place called Afghanistan. Oh. <laughs> and they got a lot of them for sale. Uh, so opium, opium poppies um, are schedule one. So I'm pretty sure that they're illegal here. Um, but there are lots of other poppies that are legal to have here. And, and most poppies do not produce opium. Uh, that opium can then be made into heroin using a very too easy, simple two-step chemical process. Um, and it can just be boiled literally and then to, to turn it into morphine, the morphine just flows to the top. So pretty interesting. It, it, the question about kind of where are these grown, you see on all the like purple reddish line here, it's the majority. That's all Afghanistan. So Afghanistan uh, is where about 90% of the world's opium poppies are grown. It's not where they originated. Uh, they, they were brought there from Mesopotamia, um, much long later after the Mesopotamian kind of civilization was there through the Silk Roads. And it just so happens that Afghanistan is like a perfect area for growing them. Um, the number um, kind of two and three places um, when in 2014, number two was this combination of Myanmar and the Laos people, Lao People's Democratic Republic. Um, that's now number three. And the number two producer now is Mexico, actually. Uh, with 2017 data. Should be the happiest place on earth, Corey Ryan says. Um, I don't know why it's not. Um, so, so it's kind of interesting. This is actually a map of, of opium and opiate trafficking around the world. So you see that most of it is kind of colored pink here, which is, means that it's, it's originating in Afghanistan. And we'll take a little kind of some closer looks at this. Afghanistan is um, situated between Iran and Pakistan, and that's that's key because the it, the poppies are grown in Afghanistan, but it's it, it's really not processed there. It's exported to Iran and Pakistan, and that's where it's changed into um, uh, really from uh, opium into heroin and illicit uh, morphine. Uh, Myanmar is is the light blue over on the right, and and the People's Democratic Republic of Laos. That, that kind of goes to other parts of Southeast Asia and down to Oceania, like um, Australia and Indonesia. And then you notice over on the Americas, um, Mexico and Colombia. So poppies are grown in Colombia, but not as much at all as in Mexico. And it turns out that most of the heroin that ends up in uh, the United States is of Mexican origin uh, these days, whereas most of the heroin in the rest of the world is of Afghani um, origin. If we take a little bit of a closer look, um, you see that, that it's trafficked kind of all over the place. Um, lots of it, more and more drugs are trafficked through West Africa, and that's just a way to get a, around interdiction. Um, 
uh, as, and we'll look at that a little bit more. But a lot of this, some of it goes to Europe. A lot of it goes up through Central Asia and into Russia. Um, and opiates are huge in Russia, and it's illegal to do treatment with methadone or suboxone um, in Russia. And so it's not only an out-of-control problem, but there's a ton of hep C, a ton of HIV, and a lot of people dying because they can't get proper treatment. And then, as we said here, so most of, of the heroin in the United States is coming from Mexico, a little bit from Colombia, but it's, you know, it's harder to traffic from Colombia. Our Coast Guard is doing a really good job. Um, and so a little bit more on that. Um, this is looking at both cultivation and eradication um, in Afghanistan. It's just kind of interesting to see that, first of all, cultivation is on the increase. Um, and notice how it's higher now than it was before we invaded in 2001. So the Taliban actually was um, not very uh, supportive of growing poppies because of the because um, it's haram in Islam to be intoxicated. In 2001, we um, invaded and that that disrupted cultivation for a year, but then it kind of came right back and then has increased. And the Taliban and and some of those other kind of warring factions are actually now in favor of opium production because it's um, funding their fight. Uh, and you notice the eradication, which is in blue, is still super minimal. Um, it's also important just to point out that some of these opium fields in Afghanistan are actually protected by the United Nations. And that's important because um, like if you break your arm, you want to have opiates. And so we have to, it's kind of a global security thing. We have to have some supply of opiates. It's just that you want to control where they go. Um, and there's not a ton of control of where they go at this point. If we look at opium, so again, you, you take that sap from the poppy and you just dry it out and boil it and you get opium. Um, most of this, um, you see, these are seizures of opium by law enforcement. The vast majority is in Iran. Uh, Iran being next to Afghanistan, it's, opium use has like been a part of that culture for hundreds of years. You see some amount in Afghanistan and elsewhere. Um, but, but a lot of it in, in Iran. We also see now a big increase in heroin use there. If you look at global consumption of opium, again, the biggest piece of the pie there is Iran, 42%. It's part of the culture. Um, uh, it's just something that kind of has happened for a long time. And then you see it's distributed elsewhere in, in, in kind of especially that part of the world. Um, this is just kind of of interest. There's this chemical called acetic anhydride. This we use to make aspirin or to make tape, and that's what you mix with opium, actually with morphine. So you take opium, you put it in a pot, you boil it, morphine and codeine come up to the top, you just scoop them out, and then those you boil and mix in some acetic anhydride, which is not illegal, and that turns into heroin. It's a really easy process to do. And, um, and what you see is that recently the sales of acetic anhydride have really increased. Um, and that's because they're being used not to make more tape or aspirin, but heroin. And it's, and it's a legal, you know, chemical, so it, there's no control of it. If we start, yeah. There's a question from the network. Yeah. Um, wasn't it popular in Asia, China, and such? Yeah, so, so opium was big in China. Um, and there was this whole kind of situation where the British who had control over parts of China actually um, purposely increased uh, access to opium there to try and kind of 
chill the people out that they were trying to control. Uh, and whole war was uh, the opium wars were, were fought over this. Um, but but the Chinese government with the Cultural Revolution really stamped down, clamped down on opium uh, use. And so there's much less of it um, now. But it's a good question. If we look at um, uh, heroin, uh, kind of what is the source of, of, of kind of, there's, so there's production and, and kind of processing. And in 2009, in Afghanistan, there was quite a bit of um, heroin production. This has now changed, and we really see that shifting to um, Pakistan. Um, and I think that's just because it's been harder to do this in Afghanistan as they've been super busy, you know, being invaded by us. Um, but also, like, they've been clamped down on this. And in Pakistan, uh, it's not really clear how much enforcement of law occurs. Um, if we look at kind of heroin around the world and, and where's most of it um, um, taken control of by law enforcement, again, Iran um, and, and then Turkey, too, in Afghanistan. So and Iran just south of Turkey, and that's part of how it's um, trafficked up into Central Asia and into Russia. Um, who's using heroin? Uh, as you see here, so Europe is about a quarter, and then almost a fifth is the Russian Federation. It's just one country using a fifth of the world's heroin. Um, it's a bit out of control. Uh, you see less of the use in, in Iran where, where you see production and trafficking through it, but only 5% of it's being used there. Um, and then U.S. and Canada, about 6%. So, and again, this is 2008, so this is 10 years ago, but um, so the, we see, you know, some increase, but still we see relatively low levels of heroin use here still. Um, but Russia, it's a huge, huge problem. Uh, and this is just showing kind of how it's trafficked up into uh, Russia and, and, and to other parts of Europe uh, primarily. Just kind of interesting. We're going to skip through that a little bit. We're going to skip through that too. One thing that I mentioned is that we see more and more trafficking through, especially Western Africa. And um, one way to understand why it happens there is if we also superimpose a map that shows armed conflict um, in the African continent. And so in this, the pictures of the gun is a non-state armed conflicts. And the, the kind of darker gray means the state-based armed conflicts. And then the little skulls um, or gas masks, I don't know what those are, episodes of one-sided violence. So in areas, you, you notice the overlap here with the purple dots on, on the left-hand side, we see a lot of trafficking in areas that are destabilized through infighting in the area. And that's, of course, when you have that destabilization, then law enforcement is not as effective, and drug traffickers take advantage of that. Um, and there are, there are a lot of kind of problems that result from that. If we skip to cocaine, um, cocaine... Mostly is, is grown coca plants in three countries, Peru, Bolivia, and Colombia. If you look at the map on the right um, side of the screen, it shows so the, the lit up areas that are in white, those are urban areas. And then the little bits of red that you see, those are um, uh, cocoa uh, cultivation. They're outside of but not too far away from um, dense populations. Um, and, and it's just, it's incredible in Colombia. Uh, so, you know, the long history of um, growing coca and especially, um, so anybody who hasn't watched the Narcos program on Netflix, I think I totally, totally recommend it. It does a really awesome job of um, describing the 
the huge explosion in uh, cocaine production um, in the latter half of the 20th century. Um, this is really just showing why people grow it, and that's because they can make a ton of money. Um, in the people who are wholesaling it and, and are on the left-hand side of this bar graph, you know, they're making anywhere from like $1 to $3 per gram. But in U.S. retail, it's up to $237 per gram. I mean, it, it's just so interesting that a product increases in price um, so much at each step. Um, and, of course, that's because it's illicit. Um, so very interesting. Most of the money is made by the end seller, not the trafficker and not the, well, the trafficker can make a lot of money as an individual, um, by selling in bulk, the, the end kind of sellers, you know, there are a lot of them. So they make a little bit of money a piece, but most of that money comes from them in aggregate. Um, and again, just kind of interesting. So how are, is this, how is it transported and, and where is, where does interdiction occur? Um, so what we've seen over time, if you look at this left side of the graph, you see the light blue part of the graphs. That means by air, by airplane. That's actually been increasing with cocaine specifically because the Coast Guard has gotten really good. You see maritime, which is the darker blue, reducing. In the early 2000s, it was a lot less, or sorry, a lot more. And then in the kind of later 2000 teens, it's, it's a lot less. Um, because our Coast Guard has gotten just super sophisticated at what they do. Um, and so then we see more of it now through road and rail and then um, some through air. So it's not true for all drugs around the earth, but it is true for cocaine. Um, <clears throat> if we looked at a map of trafficking um, from 20 years ago, I guess it's what this is, right? This is 20 years ago. You see that the vast majority, almost all of the cocaine was going to the United States. We were essentially like the sole market. Some would go to Europe, some would go to Canada, um, but the vast majority of it would come to the United States. If we then fast forward to just 10 years, to 2008, we see that this is really changing. The, the global market is expanding um, and there's more and more demand for cocaine. Also notice that the trafficking has changed now where it's now going through Western Africa. And on the one hand, that is to bring it to Europe and to, to uh, Southern Africa, specifically South Africa. Um, but some of that also comes back over. And again, that's a, a, a way to try and get around the Coast Guard. <clears throat> um, and so it's just interesting that this has changed. This used to be essentially an American market only, but now it is spreading to the rest of the world. And in 2015, you see now the map is changing even more. And it's going to Oceania. It's going to parts of Asia where it was never going before. It's going to the Middle East and to India. Um, and so it's not just a U.S. problem uh, anymore. Just fascinating. Again, if we look at kind of areas of Western Africa, and if we, again, superimpose that map of armed conflict, uh, this is we can just see that people are kind of taking advantage of the opportunity and, for all we know, fueling it somewhat. The one thing that you also see that happens with this, with it, whether it's heroin or cocaine, is that when you traffic through an area, you see a huge increase in use in that area. And so now you're seeing more and more cocaine use and, and the problems associated with it in Western Africa. Same thing with heroin. Um, right? this, is, this is, for example, one of the explanations of Rio Riva County. And like, why is there so much heroin use there? And it's because it's a trafficking route. And after a while, it becomes cheaper to pay people in product rather than in money. 
um, and then you end up getting people hooked. All right, let's look at cannabis. Cannabis is interesting. The United Nations a few years ago came out and essentially said, we are no longer going to guess how much cannabis is produced. And that's because with the exception of a few places around the world, the vast majority of cannabis production has gone indoors. And so it's just very hard to tell. You see that there is cultivation on this graph, like you see it in Afghanistan, you see it in Lebanon, you see it in Morocco. That's the hugest um, share of outside production of cannabis. But everywhere else, you don't see very much cultivation um, or harvest data. And that's because it's indoors. If we looked at kind of around the world, what places have good climates for growing it outside? And it's a lot of the world. Um, honestly, it's a lot of Europe. It's a lot of, um, especially the eastern half of the United States, South America, pretty huge swath across the African continent and in parts of Southeast Asia. It's just not grown there a lot. Um, in this map, what we see are the purple countries where you see uh, countries that are reporting indoor growth. And <clears throat> so again, even some of those, some of these places are, are called like excellent in terms of their growability. It's just not done outside. It's, it's done inside. Um, some sources have said that uh, more money is spent worldwide cultivating cannabis than any other plant. Um, and that kind of makes sense because a lot of the setups that people have with grows are pretty like high tech, um, you know, whether it's hydroponics and they have, you know, certain uh, sodium lights and using kind of controlling carbon dioxide levels. And they, they can be pretty sophisticated and all of that costs a lot of money. If you look at kind of, this is talking about cannabis resin seizures. So that's um, the old kind of school version of, um, what's it called? Hash. hash. Um, I say old school because now it's, there's a new form of hash. But um, for, for old school hash, you see a lot of this in Spain. And that's because most of hash in that kind of old form comes from uh, cannabis that's grown in Morocco. Uh, and so old school hash is where you just kind of, process or rub the cannabis um, plant leaf to get the THC and it kind of creates this little tar that doesn't burn very well on its own and you dry that out and then sell that and people will kind of mix that in with tobacco typically and smoke it that way. Now the new kind of form of hash is butane um, hash oil um, or there are other things besides butane that are used um, but that's stuff like wax uh, and, and other oils that you might hear about. That's, that's the new school hash. Um, if we look at can seizures of cannabis herb, there has been a pretty big um, clampdown in Mexico. And so it's really Mexico and the United States. The United States has just been all about, you know, stopping the weed uh, and arresting um, enormous amounts of folks uh, for it. It's just kind of interesting. Whereas in the rest of the world, they're, they're a little bit laid back about it. Um, interestingly, in Mexico, they did um, legalize its uh, cultivation. So, but it's... It's just kind of interesting. Um, and this is just kind of prevalence of cannabis use. So kind of how many people are using cannabis around the world. And you see pretty high rates, especially in North America and in Western Europe, um, in parts of Africa, and then uh, Australia. But you do see some trends essentially globally. Um, uh, it's, it's really used everywhere. Now, this is kind of interesting. This is looking at the state of Colorado. I just thought it'd be interesting to put in there because interdiction in Colorado has really changed since they legalized recreational um, cannabis. And so essentially what this shows is that um, how much money they have been uh, collecting from taxes 
Um, and this is taxes and fees. Like if you're going to sell it, you have to get a, a certificate or a license, et cetera. Um, and there are two forms of taxation. This is why they still have medical cannabis in Colorado and um, like a retail cannabis. Uh, retail cannabis has an additional 10% tax um, on their sales tax and the different taxes that are already there. So it comes up to about 25% tax, whereas the medical tax is 2.9%. So uh, the medical uh, cannabis is cheaper to the end buyer, um, but still huge um, revenue here. This is just 2014. And by the end of the year, you know, they were up to um, $8 million in the month. That's right. Pretty month. Yeah. <laughs> what are they? Sorry. I don't know if you're going to go over this. This is Matthew with APD. Do you know if, what they're doing with that money? They're doing a lot. They're doing a lot. So they're funding research. They're funding law enforcement and trying to find, you know, different ways to do this. They're also funding schools in a huge way. Like, um, uh, you know, everybody's getting computers, all students and stuff like that. So they're trying to use this money for as much good as possible. There's a question. For yeah. You from the network. Let's see here. This is kind of long, so I'll try to. Um, one is, do you feel we should legalize it? Yes. With that, there is talk that if we do legalize it, there may be a law that sets a person's level at five nanogram limit to be considered DWI, just as alcohol is 0.08. My question is, do you feel that is a good rate, or do you feel that this should be set at any amount in the body should be considered illegal when driving? So it's a great question. So, and, and I want to clarify my, my answer. So yes, I think it should be decriminalized. And that's for the reasons that I alluded to before. I think that um, putting people in jail for possession, let's say specifically nonviolent, just possession of cannabis um, is a waste of our money and resources. It does not help them in any way. And it's unjust. Um, if addiction is an illness, then I think we shouldn't punish people for illness. I think we should treat them. The, the, um, the issue of, so the, the question of what is, is kind of a legal limit is a really good question that nobody's been able to answer. I think it's a problem saying any, any cannabis in their system is, is, should be illegal. And that's because if you use cannabis every day, um, let's say you use it every day, only when you're at home and it's the end of the day, just before you go to bed and you're never driving, right? And, uh, you don't have kids. There's nothing dangerous here for other people. You, since you use it every day, it will be detectable in your um, urine for up to a month. And in your serum, same thing. It can be up to a month. So, but that doesn't mean that you're always high or impaired necessarily. So if this is a real problem because alcohol, you metabolize it out of your body so quickly that like if your blood alcohol level is 1.2, then like we know you're, you're super, you got a ton of alcohol on board right now. Um, you're actually dead. So it, let's say if it was 0.12, I should have said. <laughs> um, also, you should be driving when you're dead. True. That's a really good point. And, and that doesn't get enough attention. <laughs> so, um, so the problem is how do you identify somebody who is, who is currently intoxicated with cannabis? So Colorado has been trying to figure this out and they've been trying, they have been kind of a leader in this area. They do a lot of trainings and through that, they're really trying to get a sense. And so what they do is they bring people in and they get them high with different amounts of cannabis. And then they go through field sobriety testing. Um, and it's on the one hand, trying to teach law enforcement how to identify are you intoxicated 
or not, but it's also a way to try and figure out, so like what, what constitutes intoxicated enough? Um, now I will say I just two weeks ago found a paper that suggests that shows that people with cannabis in their system. So THC in their system at any time. So it, that could have been that they used it a month ago or an hour ago. They, they were more, so more people who were involved with motor vehicle crashes. How to say this? People who had cannabis in their system had a disproportionately high amount of motor vehicle crashes. So, and that's independent of whether they were high at the time or not. And so that does beg the question of like, so it, it appears that people are, can still have some impairment even days or weeks later. Um, it just hasn't really been, this question hasn't been answered, I think, with enough detail that I feel confident in saying like, oh yeah, this is, you know, a good standard. Um, I think people are struggling with this all over the country, although I hear some law enforcement departments that are not struggling at all, and they just say, hey, if you have it in your system, it's a DWI. And I just, I don't think that's adequate, and I don't think that's fair enough. I think it really needs to be field sobriety testing. Um, we've talked before on this network about some of the different ways to test, like divided attention tasks are really good um, for cannabis, uh, et cetera. But, you know, so there is no test to say, like a blood test or a breath test to say, oh, yeah, you smoked within three hours versus you didn't, or you, you know, ate THC, whatever. All right, so let's move on to amphetamine-type salts. Again, this is the future. We're going to see more and more of these. It's a bummer. It's a very big bummer. Um, if we look at this, so um, this is looking at in the blue here are, is the number of new psychoactive substances that have kind of reported, uh, but not for the first time, but, but they're kind of new. Right? And then the purple are new psychoactive substances that are reported for the first time. And either way, what we see is a huge increase in new synthetic drugs. And most of these are what we call amphetamine-type salts which is anything that's an um, If we look at global seizures of amphetamine-type stimulants or stimulant salts with either one, you see that there's a huge increase um, recently, and this has only uh, increased further. Um, we see that a lot of these are just amphetamines and not... Um, sorry, that, that for a while, it was kind of a, a split between normal amphetamines and methamphetamines, but then recently a huge increase in methamphetamines. And this is something I'm sure that you in law enforcement see just like we do. So like uh, in Nancy and my work, you know, like 10 years ago, even five years ago, people who came into PES who were psychotic, generally like nine out of 10 of them had schizophrenia and they were psychotic from that. And now nine out of 10 of them are high on methamphetamine and that has made them um, psychotic. And it's, it's just very striking, this total change. Um, and so we ran some data with Tricor, which is one of the big labs in town that's owned by Press and UNM, and they were able to show a huge increase in methamphetamines um, being detected in urine drug screens recently. Um, it's just a big problem, and it's going to continue to be a big problem. Uh, you see Mexico and the United States in the lower left-hand box here. Uh, we see kind of increases in, in seizures of these, of these drugs, but also note that China is there. China, I point out, because that's where a lot of this is being produced now. I just wanted to remind the network, if you're connected by phone, it's star six to mute yourself. Um, this is a map looking at, so, you know, we used to have a lot of super labs, meth labs in the United States, and then there was a huge effort to, to clamp down on them. 
And a lot of the super labs were shut down. And immediately what we saw were labs popping up in northern Mexico, just south of the border, um, mostly exporting uh, to the United States. Um, some of these northern Mexican labs have now been shut down. And what we see is that they are popping up in southern Mexico. Um, so it's a, an own choice. Um, notice, kind of interesting, if we look at amount of amphetamine seizures, now this is not methamphetamine. So these are just normal amphetamines, if you will. Vast, the, the lion's share of these have been um, seized in Saudi Arabia. Very, very interesting. It's not meth. Uh, these are just normal amphetamines, uh, but still very interesting. And so quite a lot in that area. Uh, so if you look at, again, seizure amphetamines, the, the, the lion's share in Saudi Arabia, but number two, United States, number three, China. Um, and so uh, China is where um, a lot of the meth now that we're having, uh, that we're seeing is kind of being produced and, and exported around the world. Um, lots of it uh, interdicted here, but in Saudi Arabia, it's not meth, it's just other amphetamines. And this is why. So uh, in Saudi Arabia, it's just kind of interesting. What we find there is, is what's called a pseudo-pharmaceutical. And now we're seeing pseudo-pharmaceuticals here. Uh, a pseudo-pharmaceutical called Captagon. And it's an amphetamine that's made in Poland and Bulgaria and then trafficked through Turkey. And it's, 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 it comes in a package. It's a blister pack. It looks like a medicine. Again, Saudi Arabia, Wahhabi Islam, um, there are strong laws against intoxication. But this is, it, it looks like a medicine, not a drug. And so um, it's kind of, I don't know, I guess people feel better about using it that way. But the main market is Saudi Arabia. It's just kind of interesting. Um, if we look at kind of trafficking routes of these amphetamine-type stimulants as a whole, again, we see over on the left-hand side lots of production in, in Mexico coming north into the United States, plenty of production in Europe, um, and that's Captagon, but it's also Ecstasy. And then if you see lots and lots of kind of the emergence of, of especially meth, the meth is in red in Southeast Asia. And that's because there was a really big um, push to like train people and educate people in Southeast Asia and, and build kind of chemical processing plants. And so there were a lot of people with kind of knowledge and now all these new facilities. And what has happened is, is that there's been a big shift to using those to make illicit um, uh, drugs, but especially uh, methamphetamine and other amphetamines. It's very interesting. Um, same thing that we see elsewhere when we see things trafficked through um, African countries. Uh, again, it's that map. It's the same. It's high conflict areas for the most part, with the exception of uh, South Africa um, and Egypt. Uh, but it's, it means that there's a lot more use there as well. Um, this is just one other kind of interesting graph to look at in terms of interdiction. This is in the United States. And over time, from 2005 up to 2012, and looking at the difference in purity, which is the yellow line in boxes, purity of meth, as a product of, of its price. So as time goes on kind of from left to right, and the purity increases in general, we see that its cost goes up. All those kind of little sentences there are about different aspects of interdiction, trying to ban certain precursors, um, trying to require uh, prescriptions, et cetera. And what I think is interesting, if you look here, is that despite those efforts being done, regulating it, shutting down super labs, the purity overall has actually 
increased and the market has increased. And again, this is, so this is one of the reasons why I really kind of attack the war on drugs and all these drugs and possession of them illegal. I think it's, it makes sense to go after traffickers, but the more you try to kind of, you know, clamp down on processes, the more likely they are to go into clandestine markets, which means that it's really hard to monitor them. And then they can, they can spin out of control, um, just as we've seen happen across that awesome country of Mexico, where it's now, you know, a, a dangerous place that's in a lot of areas controlled by kind of organized crime. Um, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't try interdiction. It just means that, like, our approach so far has been a big failure, I would say. Um, this is just looking at some other drugs um, and kind of how are they being used in the United States. Synthetic cannabinoids is spice, um, and so some high amounts of that, but not huge. Um, salvia divinorum is a type of sage plant that causes uh, an experience somewhat similar to uh, people describe it like uh, psilocybin or mushrooms. Um, it's pretty brief, and then people are real sad and dysphoric afterwards. Uh, most people that use salvia don't repeat the experience. You see some ketamine, and then bath salts hopefully will just go away by themselves because um, most people, you know, they wake up in, in the ER or in jail, uh, and it's not what they're looking for. Um, and that's really what this shows. Uh, bath salts kind of peaked, and then luckily it's going away. This is just what this is showing. The trend is going down. They'll go away the way that PCP did. So that's that.